A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film historian Alicia Fletcher and film producer, VP of production at Faye Pictures, and karaoke enthusiast, Lindsay Blair Goldner. Tall, lanky, and with a distinctive voice and delivery style, one could easily have written Jeff Goldblum off as a character actor. We talked about him earlier this season in one of his earliest but still defining role as Max in Between the Lines. He was just starting a promising career then, but by 1988, he'd become not only one of Hollywood's hottest leading men, but also one of Hollywood's hottest leading men. Now, today, we're going to look at two movies where he's given the romantic lead and pulls it off in his own special way. Now, Lindsay, why do you think Goldblum has appealed to audiences for so long? Like, he's just never gone away. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to answer <laughs> that question uh, with like only one or two things. I feel like Jeff Goldblum speaks to the everyman in a lot of ways. He's smart. He's funny. And I agree. He is so hot, but he's kind of like unconventional hot and he seems really relatable in a lot of ways. So I think that kind of funny riding the line between it could be someone that you know, but he could also hit on your girlfriend, makes you feel like uh, this is someone you want to watch in movies. And I love he's having a renaissance. <laughs> the hit on your girlfriend thing is funny because it's like, yeah, it's with leading men, especially when you're looking at romantic comedies and things, it needs to be date night movies that like someone significant other would also go to. Because it seems to me, I mean, perhaps this is just like a, um, a stereotype that's unfair, but there's always one party that is more interested in going to a date movie <laughs> than the other party is. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he would mm-hmm. be a draw for both parties that would be not necessarily into watching a romantic comedy. It's so true. And I find his appeal is so widespread because my love of Jeff Goldblum was actually passed down to me from my father. So (laughs) as like a young Jewish girl, like my my dad was obsessed with sci-fi movies. Obviously the 90s with Jurassic Park, Independence Day. My dad was obsessed with Jeff Goldblum in movies and I therefore became obsessed. So he's like relatable to guys and, you know, relatable to me. And (laughs) I feel like he has this wide appeal. It's funny because... We had opposite dads because my dad didn't care about movies. He didn't care about Hollywood. The only thing he cared about is every time he saw Jeff Goldblum come on screen, talk about how really? unattractive he was. Wow. <laughs> was just, which obviously instilled something in me. Like, I am with you, Lindsay, Goldblum mm-hmm. fan all the way. Yeah, like, I remember being young and just thinking, why would men judge each other that way? And, like, it was just my first example of adult males talking about each other's, you know— Uh, being virile or being attractive or not. And so I think it really instilled in me that there's something different about Jeff Goldblum, that maybe he was a bit dangerous and a bit different. And that that probably instilled a lot of rebelliousness in me and explains why I like the Goldblum that I like today. I do. I was going to say that I think he's like not really a threat to guys, despite being able to hit on your girlfriend. Like he has that kind of funny uh, air to him, but... Well, I think yeah. that's what my dad was responding to is he just couldn't get the sex appeal. Like, why? Because he had a uh-huh. huge crush on Gina Davis, who we're going to talk about. And, of course, they were married. So I think his crush on Gina Davis meant that he didn't understand why she would marry a man like him. And that made him reflect <laughs> on his own masculinity, which— And, again, I'm eight at this <laughs> point know, trying eight. to, like, <laughs> decipher all these. I, I feel like yeah. this is—he's someone, too, who has always, like— been able to be in movies that are either just before or just after the zeitgeist so they haven't burnt out. So, like, in the 70s, you're watching him do, like, these incredibly cool independent movies. A lot of people don't realize he's one of the hoodlums in Death Wish, you know, like, yeah. which, is a, which was a big uh, franchise-spawning film, although it's disgusting to watch now. You've got lots of other films, too, like uh, Behind the, or Between the Lines, which we talked about. Again, very avant-garde, mm-hmm. very cool, very, like, of-the-moment sort of hangout movie um, on the forefront. And then you start getting into, like, the 80s and these rom-coms and everything's kind of sexy. I mean, even to the point, uh, the fly is like kind of falls in that sort of sort of genre, that oh, sci-fi yes. uh, romantic era, you know, where you cry at the end over this monster. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, too, because yeah. I find when you look at, like, letterbox reviews of some of his older films, like Buckaroo Banzai and Transylvania 6,000, oh, so you see a lot of these comments that are like, you know, maybe they didn't love the movie, but they love Jeff Goldblum in the movie. Yeah. So him having this yeah. renaissance now, yeah. which I was trying to figure out, like, what was the film that kind of catapulted him into, like, hot daddy era of, like, the past <sighs> 10 or so years? Because yeah. I felt so validated when everyone else started saying, yeah, Jeff Goldblum's hot. Because for years in high school, I had to defend that choice. <laughs> 
It felt like it wasn't necessarily mm. a film. Maybe there was one. I mean, we could look at his filmography. It felt like he started giving interviews in a different way where he was a lot looser, a lot wackier. Like, he was doing a lot of talk shows. He was appearing on a lot mm. of other people's shows. Like, it's when he became a brand, sort of. And it wasn't as tied to, like, the films he was making and more so that he became, you know, the, the jazz. Yep. Like, showing up at these incredible kind of underground jazz clubs, which I know Lindsay And I met him. And <laughs> um, yeah. I, I remember day. that Instagram post. <laughs> Big day. Yeah. Like, it was more like he became—we we all reflected that. Yes. Oh, he's approachable. More to your point, like what you're talking about. Like, I could go to this place in yep. L.A. and he's just jamming. Or he really likes cooking, or he's, you know, it's just or his fashion. I mean, his fashion is a huge part of it. We're seeing that with Pedro Pascal, too, that fashion is so tied into this, like, mm-hmm. daddy fantasy. Um, and mm-hmm. he is one of those fashionable men in Hollywood, for sure, and has been forever. Even though in his own films, like, especially Earth Girls and Vibes, clothes fit him very strangely, because no one knew how to tailor for Jeff Goldblum in the mm-hmm. 80s, because he's so tall. So, so tall. So, so thin. But then, you know, pro- he starts working with Prada. He starts working with these big luxury brands and he just became And I think he's memeable, right? Like, I mean, how many times? I think the big one was the Jurassic Park Ian Malcolm lounging with his shirt off. Like, there's that's exactly exactly the kind of sex symbol that we want. Uh, Let's get into our first movie. So, although Goldblum seems to be for all times, the same can't be said for Earth Girls are easy. Not that it's bad or dated, just that it could only have been made at the exact moment in history where Valley Girls, music video directors, dance battles, pop music breaks, iconic Los Angeles landmarks, including an appearance by Angeline, and Jim Carrey and Damon Wayans in supporting roles all came together for an hour and a half of a time capsule of the late 80s. I have no idea how this movie was pitched, let alone made. Okay, well, I do because that is my job, but it still seems totally improbable that it exists. But I believe that the world is a better place for its existence. Now, Lindsay, I know you are a fan of this. Why does it bring a smile to your face? It's kind of the perfect 80s encapsulation of L.A. that I totally enjoy. It features recognizable talent that I was obsessed with in high school. Uh, And approaching this film, I mean, the first time I watched it was when I was working at Queen Video. So I was a video store clerk. I was already obsessed with Jeff Goldblum. And I was just going through the filmography. And and I knew, of course, so well, The Fly, which was my favorite Cronenberg film in high school since change. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to see more of this Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum chemistry on camera and Earth Girls are easy. You can tell they were having a lot of sex when they were making this they movie. Sure were. It's yeah. Hilariously <laughs> horny. Yeah. It is so fun and just like totally camp and silly. And uh, I think it's just a real gem. I don't know why we haven't had an Earth Girls are easy challenge on Drag Race yet. This feels like a very easy thing mm. to do, but we'll get there. So, people who have not seen Earth Girls are easy, Lindsay, could you give us just a very brief plot summary of this bonkers film? Okay, I'm going to set the stage. It's L.A. It's San Fernando Valley, 1980s, late 80s. It's a musical comedy. You have Gina Davis playing a manicurist named, is it Valerie Gale? It's like Valley Girl, Valerie Gale. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even put that together. That's ridiculous yeah. of me not to. She has this lame-o husband or fiancé, Ted, who she's going to get married to, and he cheats on her. He's a scumbag. So she's, while she's dealing with this awful realization that her fiance is cheating on her, a spaceship crashes into her pool. And on the spaceship are three <laughs> fur-covered aliens uh, who are just going to Earth because they're horny and they are interested in these hairless women <laughs> of Earth. And she invites them into her home just innocently enough so she can drain the pool and help them be on their way. But, you know, along the way, she gives them a little makeover, waxes their entire bodies to find out that they are hot men (laughs) under the fur. And then they go out on the town in 1980s Los Angeles, and it's just a delight. (laughs) And really, this is a hangout movie as well, right? Like, there just happens to be people who end up together at the end. Uh, Alicia, you must have feelings about this. (laughs) You're a woman of feelings. (laughs) Yeah, I had never seen this. I can't believe I didn't grow up with this. I don't remember it on television. I always remember the title being, like, omnipresent. But uh, sitting down to watch it in this context was fascinating. I couldn't believe a lot of what I was seeing. Some of the the production design is fantastic because she works at this um, salon uh, as a manicurist, like Lindsay said, called yeah. Curl Up and Die, like D-Y-E. And it's all like kind of Nashville design, like very, um, very iconic late 80s. 
And it's just so visual. What I I have a hard time with, and we have to talk about this, is how it functions as a musical. Because it feels like it's fighting against being a musical in a lot of ways. And yet it's based on a musical. So it has to have songs. And songs sometimes work and sometimes they don't. Gina Davis, turns out, (laughs) does not sing. Nor does Jeff Goldblum, which I think we knew. And so it's Julie Brown we'll, we'll talk about. But it's such an odd film. And yet there were moments that I was laughing so hard, especially because of Jim Carrey, which I find surprising. This is one of his earliest roles. is before he was on In Living Color, co-starring with Damon Wayans, who was also a year off of um, In Living Color. Their chemistry is amazing. And just the way they kind of navigate the silliness um, and the physical comedy works so well with Jeff Goldblum, who is somehow yeah. kind of the straight man mm-hmm. in their trio. Um, but he's so sexy. Oh, my God, like after yeah. he gets the waxing and <laughs> do you the want to talk about the eyeliner? That. Do you want to talk about the eyeliner? <laughs> I think you should talk about the eyeliner. What do you think I of the like eyeliner? the eyeliner. I am pro eyeliner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just you get we got big eyes like that. I want more eyeliner. Thank you. Give me my Trent Reznor, mm. and I'm a happy woman. Mm, yeah, I agree. I find him. I mean, he is obscenely sexy in this movie. And uh, yeah. we were talking about this earlier, but he's shot the same way that Gina Davis is. Like they're both so sexualized yeah. in this film. And the same and height, the- too, so you can actually match the <laughs> yeah. eyelines in a proper way, which is rare because he is so tall, but she is so tall as oh, well. Oh, yeah. She's six foot and he's six four. And, I mean, this was well after I came out, but this movie totally induces bisexual panic. Like, they are <laughs> they are mm-hmm. so beautiful mm-hmm. together in this film. And you can tell, like, that chemistry on screen is palpable. <laughs> you can feel it. Uh, yeah. There is an amazing yeah. Washington Post profile interview with uh, Gina Davis just as this movie is being shot, like at the end of it being shot, it seems like. And uh, Lindsay, you read the article and this infuriated you because you're like, why is this written this way? Well, yeah, she's written like a, like she's like a species to observe. It's so strange. It's wild. I know. And it's, <laughs> it's from 1988. And so one of the things I love is it says, uh, it's her perfect, perfect body won't put off or intimidate female viewers because she's so much like a Labrador, <sighs> Labrador retriever. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yes. I mean, we now know what Gina Davis, who, I mean, what an important person in our industry for studying and quantifying and advocating for representation um, of genders of women on screen. But like, this is the shit she had to deal with. And there's so much that's come out this year with even worse things. But yeah, the way she was treated in the press is so baffling. It's just, I don't Mm -hmm. get it. She does have this appeal that I would argue, I think Jeff also has kind of wider appeal because while they are both objectively very attractive people, they're not by any means like kind of the prototype of the 80s celebrity, Mm -hmm. Hollywood celebrity. You know, we're thinking like 80s hard bodies, like chiseled abs. I mean, they're both very fit and hot, blonde hair, fake boobs. Like they don't really match what you would imagine is like, or even some of like the biggest, you know, um, leading talent of the time, but they still are very attractive, very approachable. And they both play like um, one side of a spectrum of characters where it's like for Gina, she was doing like kind of quirky intellectual girls or hot lady. And then he would do like sexualized character or a nerdy guy that doesn't get laid. And they kind of, it's mm-hmm. it's reconciled a little bit in this movie, kind of, maybe. I'm curious what you think. <laughs> well, it's interesting that she starts out the film, you know, with her idiot doctor Mm. fiancé who's obsessed with his fish that are all named after various luxury car brands, which, of course, the aliens eat right (laughs) away. Um, That's that's such a great scene. But uh, she's just made to be kind of the fool a little bit in the beginning of the film, which I think puts us on a level playing ground Mm. with her because we've all been, you know, maybe we haven't been cheated on. You probably have, or you've had some sort of, you know, you felt very inferior in a relationship. Someone's mistreating you. Like, it's a really... Interesting, not interesting, it's a good device in this film Mm -hmm. to make us really sympathize with her. So we're not then alarmed that she is smoking hot. Um, Because we're like, oh, she's just, you know, dating this horrible doctor who's cheating on her and she's still trying to, like, chase him and it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And then I think you're right with the Goldblum character where, you know, he's 
In this film, he's like clearly in love with her and just uh, kind of waiting for her to come around to it. And it, it's a big payoff. This is a great romantic comedy. Yeah. It really is. There, what I find fascinating about it is there is an innocence to the sexuality, even though it's an extremely horny movie. Uh, mm. This feels very almost incongruous to like a post-Animal House and Porky sort of world with a sex comedy where it would be mm-hmm. raunchy and grotesque. This, there's an innocence to this. It's like very the pajama game, like that kind of, or sorry, uh, pillow talk, like that kind of thing, you know? No, I think that's so fascinating because I also find that their love scene, spoiler alert, uh, their love scene in the film, (laughs) it's very focused on her. Like she, I mean, she chooses to hook up with him. But what I'm imagining that's that dreamy sequences is like her having her first orgasm. Yeah. That's how I interpret that scene. And I'm like, of course it's with Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) The doctor couldn't do it for her. It's the way their bodies is specific. Yeah. They, the way their bodies fit together. Like I was watching it, it's shot from above, as, a, as yes. though the camera is a mirror above mm-hmm. the bed. I was like, "Oh, this is very narrative." Yeah, and <laughs> like in terms of their marriage, yeah, and, she, and the way they fit together, mm-hmm. I was like, "This feels very naughty." Like I feel like I'm watching the Pamela Anderson tape right now. Like I don't know how I feel about this in this like very PG yeah. film. But, but she says something to that illusion too when she's like, "Oh, we can't sleep together. What if the our anatomy might not even work?" And he takes off his clothes. And she goes, oh, it will. And it's <laughs> yeah. such a great moment because you're like, get get it, yeah. Gina. Fuck your shitty fiance. Like, get yeah. it. <laughs> now this yeah, she does. Now she this was it. directed by Julian Temple, who is uh, mm-hmm. known for being mostly a music video director. Like he worked with the Sex Pistols. He works with he worked with David Bowie on a number of occasions. Like his and this is a very music video-driven film, which for some music video directors who are coming in, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, that doesn't always work. But it feels like this is such a spectacle film that these choices that he's making to, like, to shoot the sex scene almost in a music video-y sort of way, right? It's very flowy. Mm -hmm. It's very She's Like the Wind. Like, it's got got a lot of that going on. It feels like (laughs) this is the perfect director for this film. I can't think of anyone. And he doesn't take it too seriously. Every moment is just more popcorn and gum. Like, it's the three minutes and then your attention span and resets. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually been one of the criticisms of the film is that it feels like an extended music video, but I like that about mm-hmm. it. It really works to amp up the campiness of the film and the soundtrack is just wild. Like beyond the Julie Brown tracks, it's also just has a great soundtrack. So it feels like it really yeah. resembles, I mean, everything about it feels very time capsule of its era, but it works so well with the aesthetic of the film. And I also read that he, I think is the reason Angeline has the cameo that she does in the movie, which is such a music video thing. Oh. Music video director thing to come up with is be like why would yeah. why would we not have this icon of eighties LA featured in the film in this minuscule way in a pink mm-hmm. car? It's such a great cameo, and it's not just like it's not brief. She gets quite a few oh, lines, yeah. quite a few moments. She got a Razzie yeah. for this, by the way. She was nominated for a <laughs> Razzie for her appearance in this film, which I just think is so offensive because like she she just yeah. has this small moment and it's really cute and kitschy, but like to give her a Razzie, really? <sighs> she did great. The Razzies have historic always had yeah. it wrong. Like, why that award even exists in well, this Well, they're just apologizing me, now for giving it yeah. to children is yeah. like, yeah, because they've done that repeatedly. Yeah, they're they, yeah, poor yeah, taste. Yeah, they, the Razzies deserve yeah. a Razzie yes. for being the worst award. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> done. Is the, I wonder if one of the reasons this didn't do well is like Hollywood loves to make movies about itself. L.A. loves to see itself on film. Uh, therefore, like a lot of stuff is greenlit. It wins Oscars. It, win, it wins awards. But is the rest of the world as obsessed with Los Angeles culture? Like this may be one of the most L.A. movies ever made. Like, if you know L.A., there's so many like landmarks and icons and in-jokes. And like, is it is it too L.A. for the rest of the world? Maybe. Also, I guess they were coming off of like having done The Fly. Yeah. Which did very mm-hmm. well. And I think it made mm-hmm. them, you know, these like critical art house film darlings. So then this to go from that to something as goofy as this, which is very similar to Transylvania 65000 in its goofiness and its silliness. But I don't think it was treated the same way because it is so campy and kitschy. And you kind of have to like let yourself have a good time watching it. I think applying a very like critical view of this film while watching it, you're going to nitpick, of course, but it's a really fun time. Yeah. And if you accept it for what it is, I think that's how you can enjoy the film. So yeah, I, I'm not sure if LA has a wide stream appeal, <laughs> but looking at it now, like it totally screams cult film. It's such a simulacrum of LA, which a city, which as a city itself is a simulacrum. Like it's this strange, 
Like, if you've never been to L.A., you might, this might be when you close your eyes what you picture from cartoons and comic strips and television. Like, all the places that she visits, all the cars, a lot of the cars, when they go, there's a gas station sequence, two of the cars are from Death Race 2000, just <laughs> randomly. Like, why? Like, Calamity Jane's car. Um, it's such a, it's such a, a false L.A., but I think that's what works well about it is that, of course, LA is a, like, I love LA. I partially grew up there, but it's a false city. Mm -hmm. It's a city of just simulation. And why not make it like LA meets Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse? That's essentially how I feel that they designed this set and all of the locations. Mm -hmm. And how does a manicurist afford an LA house like that? Or buy a doctor. That's it. Yeah, I know. But she kind of, that's how. It's still answer. today, a doctor could not. Uh, that's true, and I could not stop staring. That set, you're you're totally right about the production design. It's gorgeous because I could not stop staring at the sets, like the man, like the salon, and even the hospital looks yeah, so wild. Especially. The house, incredible. The it's nightclub totally scene. Stunning. I love a good nightclub scene. Oh, it's brilliant. Real fun. Yeah, the Jim Carrey tongue moment where all the women are like, "I'm taking you home." No, I'm taking you home. No, I'm taking you home. It's amazing. It's perfect. Yeah. I'm going home with him. I'm going home with him. Well, let's get into how this movie got made and Julie Brown. Now, Alicia, mm -hmm. do you know much about this? I mean, I knew who she was. I knew her music, but I this was this was all news mm. to me. This this <laughs> sordid production history. Yeah, so she uh this was one of those movies that it is like how did this end up getting made? Like it is it, it so it got shopped around a ton and it got shopped around specifically with Julie Brown to be the lead. She was a comedian. She was um, uh, known kind of like for her weird alien sort of like, like she would do song parodies, but she would also do like big comedy songs, which the, uh, but I'm a blonde, obviously being her biggest hit from this movie. And I think she had recorded it before, like flight of the Concord style. And they just kind of add something on this movie ran extremely short, which is why that music video sequence is in here. Uh, Cause it certainly comes mm -hmm. out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, but she was shopped as the lead, which makes a hundred percent sense. And then her character was intended to be a gay, best friend, which when she was trying to turn it into a Broadway musical uh, back in 2013, 2014, when that big boom was happening, uh, that was what it was going to end up being again, was that that Candy character was going to be a gay best friend. Um, but they eventually, uh, it was very small budget. And then somehow, I'm still not entirely sure how, Gina Davis got a hold of the script and she went, I want to do this. And she said, I wanted to do a, I wanted to do another comedy where I could, you know, spend more time with Jeff Goldblum. She was like, do you you want to come do this? He was like, yeah, why not? And next thing they know, they are fully funded. They have more money than they could possibly imagine doing this. They get Julian Temple on board and it happens. So this is very much like a star powered vehicle for two, for two actors that I'm like, do they even fit these roles? Like, is this actually an accurate vanity project for them? Mm. I, they don't fit the roles, but it works somehow. I don't, I mean, it, there's something about that oddness to it that this is so, such a, such a surprising turn for them that it makes the film more appealing for me. Because if it was just typical, mm -hmm. I don't think it would be a, the cult film that it is. I wonder, like, when we're talking about who might have otherwise directed this, it gives me, like, more innocent John Waters vibes. Where I yeah. feel like... Same year as Hairspray. Yeah, yeah it makes So, like, sense. if he did it, it could have been a little more insidious, maybe a little darker. Maybe the fiancé would have died, which I would have loved. But I think, yeah, as a vehicle for Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum's relationship, I mean, I think what they wanted to do was see it really solidify them as the star couple. And I think maybe it had a bit of that resonance. This would be the last film that I think they did together. So, sadly, it kind of starts and ends there. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I feel like it's just such a funny, weirdo beacon of a movie. And uh, the fact that it exists now and it's kind of like Renaissance as a cult film, I think speaks to that like larger appreciation for what was coming out then as being like kitschy and campy and people weren't getting it. Now there's like a, a genuine appreciation I for think that. We're that coming kind of to the now. end of this era as well of like we're just about to get into like the dark major blockbuster uh, vibes of like the the early 90s. And you just even after this point, I think this is kind of the last of those sorts of movies, especially with this kind of production value and this sort of like this is the budget on this thing is ridiculous for what you're looking at. Like how they how they built that spaceship, how they have this many locations that look this good, this many sets. You definitely wouldn't see a film like this made today with this kind of production value. It's just not possible. 
No way. 10 million was nothing. And wasn't it something like they had to shave down the budget a bunch to get it made because the last film that Julian had made was like such an absolute yeah. bust. So they yeah. had to like absolute, absolute beginners. beginners. Yeah. So it was such a, such a uh, poorly received film that they had to lower the budget for this movie and they still pull it off. I think well, tremendously well. Well, how much well. does this tap into the Valley Girl? Like, do we see the Valley Girl, uh, I don't even want to say aesthetic, but like the the trend of Valley Girl movies as as being something that would appeal to audiences. So uh, I was talking to Lindsay earlier and both of us agree that Clueless was late to the party. Clueless is actually like one of the kind of last yes. movies. Like you have the you have actual Valley Girl. You have this <laughs> Encino Man we discussed is a Valley Girl movie. Um, like you, it's very much a very brief window of time where we are obsessed with the Valley Girl, and it starts with Frank Zappa, weirdly enough, and a song he did with with Moon Unit called Valley Girl, where she just says all these different phrases, and then like this music happens, and then she says another phrase, um, and it's intended to make fun of them. But I don't feel like a lot of these movies are making fun of the Valley Girl. Like, she's always redeemed in the end. Like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is also a, va- a Valley Girl movie, right? All these, like, late a- mid-80s to early 90s movies. How does this fit in there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it's such a great beacon and, like, kind of companion piece to Valley Girl, the movie. I think it was, like, 1983 mm-hmm. that that one came out. You see another You see another renaissance of the Valley Girl film in the early 2000s. Like, there's a couple teen films that kind of speak to the Valley Girl. I think we still see a little bit of it now. I'm thinking Jawbreaker mm-hmm. comes to top of mind. There's mm-hmm. a couple films that kind of, like, linger on to it. So I think this is still at the... This is probably at the peak Valley Girl time. Uh, I, however, think... The way Gina Davis plays it is a little different. Like she's technically a valley girl in the sense that she is in the valley. She's a manicurist. I can't tell if the way she speaks or her intonation matches what a valley girl would traditionally sound like, especially based on like uh, Moon Unit's uh, interpretation of one. Mm-hmm. I think she's a little bit different from that or deviates a bit from it. Um, just a little older, yeah. right? Like the valley girl always think Teenager. of a high school bound trope. And yeah, she, this woman's in her late 20s potentially. Yeah, I think the re- big Valley Girl moment is, at least for me, when um, they run into the other car full of like blonde women that like Jim Carrey's character flirts with by just imitating mm-hmm. what they're saying. And he has a Valley Girl moment that's really great where they're like, you want to go out and party? And he's like, yeah, go party. Like he's basically just you know, he doesn't speak English, so he's learning <laughs> how to speak through them. And what he's learning is like that Valley Girl intonation, which is very cute. Want to party? Well, and the equivalence, the equivalency <laughs> yeah. of the um, the masculine version of it, right? Like Michael McKean's Woody is doing like the surfer bro, which he is. This was oh. a wild casting right. for me because I was like, I would not have thought to put this era Michael McKean in that role. But no. it wasn't supposed to be him originally. He switched with Charles Rocket. Charles Rocket was supposed to be playing that character. Michael McKean was supposed to be playing Ted. And they both decided that they wanted to play the opposite. And they they like showed Julian Temple and they were like, he was like, okay, why not? And they flipped. So it's like, that's just, whoa, that's, that's wild. Yeah, <laughs> As a producer, how does that make you feel, Lindsay? <laughs> Two actors just I that. don't know. I also read somewhere too that Gina Davis wasn't the first no. who was offered, right? Mm-hmm. It was, uh, there was Molly Ringwald and so Madonna many. were also considered for this role. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine. Madonna was too big. They were, they were, it was off the Desperately Seeking, Seeking Susan thing of 1985, yes. right? Because the only reason they got her right. for Desperately Seeking Susan, we have a whole episode about this. Please feel free to listen to it. Um, uh-huh. But she, the only reason she got that they, was that Susan Seidelman had to fight for her. And then while the movie was filming was when she blew up musically. And all of a sudden their budget doubled because they had to hire a bunch of security because they currently had the biggest pop star on the planet filming on this streets in New York. So, I mean, not only was would she probably have been out of budget for them, her last couple of movies had also completely flopped because she's got Shanghai Surprise and she's got Who's That Girl, which did not do particularly well. So you have someone who it costs a lot of money and also and also isn't showing that value in the box office. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. No, I love Michael McKean's like cameo in this film is like, you know, soft hearted, sweet surfer pool boy who just like has two beer can. What are those beer can helmet things? I think I think that it's, it's just, just that, that. beer can so. helmet. Yes. That must be I just remember called. them from like The Simpsons. And I'm like, where did they yeah. go? They should come back. I feel like that's yeah. kind of a, <laughs> a very funny contraption of the late 80s, early 90s that we don't see anymore. But yeah, he's like so tender hearted. And this film is like kind of funnily a cab in many ways, which I quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. Like he makes fun of the mm-hmm. cops. The aliens make fun of the cops. They make the cops fall in love with each other so they can escape. Like, I love that. The cops great. are just named Joe the Cop and Mike the Cop. Yeah. Like, those are literally their names <laughs> in the credits. 
that's yeah. And you see them outside of the Randy's donut shop, like just surrounded by cops. Upseating donuts, like that's all they do. It's great. It's a very A cap movie in many ways. <laughs> Let's get into the uh, musical numbers now. How do we feel about the musical numbers, uh, and especially like? Um, but I'm a blonde. Actually, made it onto the Billboard charts after this, which is kind of wild. Like it's very Weird. that like novelty flash in the pan. How do we feel about these? They make me think. Honestly, watching the sequence again, I was reminded of pop-up video back in the day on Much Music. You watch pop-up <laughs> video where it gives you facts about where yeah. the song came from. And I remember distinctly the the episode about B-52's Love Shack. Yeah. It brought me back. Mm-hmm. I was like, this oh. is so... And it's just it's like just that. It's just like yes. that. It's a great little standalone music video slotted into this film. <laughs> like, it really feels like its yeah. own individual piece. Doesn't have to be there. So glad it is because it just adds a bit more of that pastiche, that camp to the film that uh, exists all around. <laughs> it, it reminded me a bit of a film that, according to Letterboxd, I watched 17 times in 18 months. And that's uh, Starstruck, Julian so Armstrong's, good. which I want to make like Brilliant that's, film. that's my film. That's I don't. It doesn't matter. Somehow I'm addicted to it. But it has that that vibe of that kind of post-punk, new mm-hmm. wave, music video transitioning into an MGM musical. Like, you've got the MGM style of costumes and sets and a lot of extras, but it's very much for the MTV generation. Mm-hmm. It, it And that's a compliment that this film reminded me of Starstruck. So I think there's a little bit of a partnership there for sure. Totally. And I think you're totally right with the MTV generation thing. This was totally peak MTV era. So if you could take a moment out of a film, which we're going to talk about Cindy Lauper in the next film, of course, and, you know, her companion piece to Goonies. So I think a lot of film producers were also thinking, like, how can we expand upon this IP, you know, get a music video out of it? And it's also, you know, we had um, as, you know, the songwriter and had all these pieces that were already available and popular. I think it just makes sense from a marketing standpoint as a producer at this time to think, how can I appeal to that audience as well? It is also a movie I am surprised didn't end up getting turned into a musical, like that that didn't end up taking off. And uh, because it just seems kind of perfect for that with the bright colors, especially because this uh, 2013 around there was like when Hairspray was still on Broadway and like really just killing Mm -hmm. it. And so it seems like it's the same kind of kind of vibe. How would you put because so the three aliens have to shrink themselves to fit in the ship. So natively, they are they're small and then they enlarge themselves to then be in Gina Davis's world. <laughs> yeah. I'm just picturing the mu- like a staging of this, and I'm like, oh, that's a bad move. Because how do you make the, the actors, big and small, have a spaceship? This could be very complicated. I'm sure there, there's there's all sorts of magic things. If they can make the Phantom disappear, they can give me tiny <laughs> aliens. <laughs> I gotta say, I think a lot of those choices, like being in the industry, have a lot to do with budgetary constraints. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so like anytime I'm like, oh, that's an interesting choice, probably has to do with the fact that they couldn't get like an entire soundstage, right? Just like a portion of one yeah. to create this uh, this set, this spaceship. But yeah, it is a weird little piece of like, I guess their their existence that they can shrink and grow. And of course, Jeff Goldblum chooses to be 6'4". I would too. Yeah, that's a normal yeah. Well, the world is not built for you when you went 6'4". I had a boyfriend who was 6'6", six, six, and trust me, it, the world was not built for him. He was constantly explaining it thus. All right, well, let's get into uh, some vibes coming up with Vibes. That's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points (laughs) of film history that that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. 
Written off by the Los Angeles Times journalist Christine McKenna as romancing the Ghostbusters in the Temple of Doom, Vibes wasn't a hit with audiences when it landed. And although it does have a lot of tinges of those three other mega hits of the 80s, it also has a lot that stands on its own, both with a fabulous performance from Goldblum at his geeky best, but also with a debut from 80s diva herself, Cyndi Lauper, in a feature film lead. By 88, she was no stranger to the soundtrack, already having done Goonies Are Good Enough and Girls Just Want to Have Fun, among other hits. Nor had she shied away from theatrics. She was integral to the launching of WWE's WrestleMania, which is a fascinating story unto itself. But could her brand of quirk really work against Goldblum's romantically? Alicia, what do you think? I didn't grow up with this film. I saw it for the first time, like, New Year's Eve two years ago and fell in love. Like, I, I wish I had this film in my childhood. It's one of those. Like, it's so fun. It's it's a genre that they do not make anymore. It mashes a lot of genres up. And then it doesn't matter to me if Cindy Lauper and Goldblum have perfect chemistry because they're both supposed to be very odd. And they're both psychics <laughs> and clairvoyants in different categories. Like one has um, a medium that is with her that can then speak to the dead. Jeff Goldblum's character can touch an object and it will, um, he will then be able to tell like who was holding it and where they are. It's, it's kind of a different way of thinking of psychics, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter about their chemistry, which I do think it's there in a friendship way. It's more just going along with this wild ride. Like to go from, and such a great cut, it goes from Ecuador, like these Incan temples to like the Bronx, <laughs> like one short cut. Like it's um, this is on Hollywood Suite. This was a big one for me when it came when it premiered on Hollywood Suite because um, we'd never had it in our history, and it, it to me defines exactly the kinds of gems we want to bring to Hollywood Suite that people maybe aren't aware of. Um, yes, it has a thirteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that is a very false score and not accurate at all. And also no one's updated the reviews of it anyway, Mm. so it's not realistic. But this is such a fun comedy. It really is. It's utterly charming. I was surprised how much I liked this, how much it falls into like modern screwball, which screwball, modern screwball is very hard to do because there's just so much of attack on each other and so much like he's screwing with her, she's screwing with him, and then the two of them have to come together to solve everything. And you don't, that doesn't come easy in a modern world. And I think this is as close as I've ever seen. And the the dialogue is so fast and so dry and they're both delivering it so beautifully. And I think that's why people, one of the reasons people didn't react to it is it's just such an unusual tone for the 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you throw in Peter Falk. Yes. And Julian Sands. Yes. I mean, Julian Sands is excellent at this as the yeah. baddie. Um, yeah, Peter Falk in the middle, This, these, these, you know, three musketeers traipsing around a very unglamorized Ecuador, mm-hmm. which I found very rare for this era. And they did film for three weeks in Ecuador, mm-hmm. and then all of the temple sets are um, the Colombia backlot, like all three sound stages. But the the Ecuador scenes feel kind of like you're in a travel log movie. It's interesting. Like, it, it's... It's just so bizarre. And then you have this Cindy Lauper, this tiny, tiny woman. She's so tiny with this giant man that, <laughs> to me, this is less about the chemistry of a romantic pairing mm-hmm. and more of like a Laurel and Hardy because there's a lot of slapstick. It's a lot of like kind of silent era physical comedy. And then you look at them as people and how they fit together. And it's very silent era to me mm-hmm. as well. And so, and that's why it works. I love yeah. that she calls him Stretch. Stretch. <laughs> that's yeah, Stretch. Such a stretch. cute nickname. Stretcher, Stretcher yeah. rooms. All kinds of, yeah. He doesn't like that though. <laughs> Oh, oh, stretcheroo. I gotta tell you something. Yes, one moment, please, but an important one. We've been through stretch, stretcheroo, next will be stretch mark. Where will it end? Mm-hmm. Similar to how Earth Girls Are Easy is like a ride, you just have to let it take you on. I think this film has the same kind of essence. And I love that vibes, like as a term and as a title, it's also having a little mm-hmm. like renaissance with TikTok culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for all its like flaws and quirks, this film is just really charismatic. So as long as you're going into it, just being like, I'm going to watch this play out, especially with the intro where you're introduced to these psychic characters. Like, where could this film possibly go? You would never be able to guess if you weren't told what this film was about at all, that it heads in the direction it heads in. There really is like getting on a ride that you don't know what kind of ride it is. And it's very fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Babalu Mandel, are you guys familiar with that name? 
No, no it's, a great it's a great name. name. Uh, he a is a frequent. He, he he's one of the writers. There's three separate credited writers for this film, but I think he came on and did like an Elaine May final polish and punched up all the jokes because he is the frequent collaborator of um, Billy Crystal. He and Billy Crystal. He's written almost mm. everything for Billy Crystal. So all of that like super dry New York crazy fast stuff that that uh, Cindy Lauper is doing. I'm pretty sure that's all Babalu Mandel stuff. So like Mr. Saturday Night is all him. It works for an 80s comedy, but you don't see that kind of dryness in slapstick. It's just, it's, the delivery is wild to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind the fucking dance scene. Oh, yeah. Like the, about the the, they're at a hotel. They're staying in this really like beautiful hotel. Um, I can't remember which city in Ecuador it is, but I did look it up, but it, it's a small town. And uh, they're dancing and they're, it, because of their size difference, at one point she is like, like a fetus attached <laughs> to his body as he like spins around, and it's the cutest. Like it's just so charming. I think we have it in a Hollywood Sweep promo. Um, our amazing promo editor uh, Scott. I was like, there's this one scene in Vibes you got to use where he's swinging like a like she's a koala bear attached <laughs> to her mama bear, swinging Cindy Lauper around on Jeff Goldblum. It's so silly, um, and it's but it's. It's elegant. I don't know. There's an elegance to this mm-hmm. film that it, it is completely lost in the decade that comes yeah. after. Those two, too, are just so charming. Jeff Goldblum's doing his, like, intellectual stutter thing. You know, Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. has the thickest accent. I mean, initially, I was like, is that mm-hmm. Long Island? She grew up in Brooklyn. But it sounds a little Long Island to me. It's just such a thick and beautiful accent. Mm-hmm. So they, like, really embody themselves in many ways in those roles. And I think Dan Aykroyd was initially going to be was yes. initially going to be her co-star in the film, which, like, that would have been Thank a God totally different movie. That would not have been this. Yeah. And I don't know if it would even have that romantic arc that they're trying to build in the film, which I agree with you, Alicia. I don't think there is that kind of romantic chemistry there. It's a little bit forced. But certainly the yeah. friendship element. Like, I kind of see it as, like, a friendship film. And they get together in yeah, the end Yeah, I house. think it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure maybe they, you know, it kind of ends on a romantic note, but it also ends on a silly note. Yeah. Like, you know, they've been through, like, literally hell and mm-hmm. back, potentially, <laughs> with some possession scenes and various things that we won't spoil. Because I think most of our listeners will not have seen this film right. and hopefully will watch it because of this podcast. But, uh yeah, they really have bonded. And, like, he's kind of mean. He's very—he's not kind of. He's very mean to her in the beginning. Like, he really treats her like she's dumb and talks down to her. And then part of the journey of the film is finding out that, you know, she has her own skill set. And she's very actually in tune yes. with a lot of things that he is completely oblivious mm-hmm. to. Um, and so they actually do work really together mm-hmm. as a team. The romantic side of it—and there's a lots of—there's fal- a couple false starts here on the romance level that I think— is what I like about this film. It's not overly romantic. It's like awkward. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're very awkward people. Yes. <laughs> you're not going to have this like incredible physical chemistry. We're not going to have Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum on that mattress mm-hmm. the way that we did in Earth Girls. It's going to be very odd and strange. And I, I love that. I love the oddball yeah. nature. And of they're film. very much set up as opposites, right? He comes in, yeah. he's a newbie to this psychic, you know, testing group. He has a fiance or a long-term partner that she, you know, yeah. with her psychic ability tells him, well, good luck with that. She's cheating on you, bro. And it's true. So he has like bad luck and love. She dates like the weirdest people or is attracted to the weirdest people. Steve Buscemi. Including a young, very young Steve Buscemi. A young, in his like fourth looking, role, Steve looking Buscemi. Looking so Bill Skarsgård, like for real. Yes, he is. he does. So, I mean, he's very uncharming in the role, but he's quite handsome. Uh, so she's unlucky in love and she's kind of boy obsessed in this funny way that like you kind of buy for her character. Like she's always dressing really mm-hmm. cute. And yeah, Jeff Goldblum, his character kind of makes fun of the way she dresses, the way she talks. But as you, the viewer, are kind of being charmed by her, you kind of see his character soften to be charmed by her. He's kind of mm-hmm. like a hardened intellectual type. He's a curator at a gallery. He's a snob, but he kind of becomes less snobby and it's kind of sweet to see how they like find what they can relate to and it brings them together and trauma. Having recently rewatched Romancing the Stone, like you kind of look at all the movies that this references. And I just recently watched Romancing the Stone. And I actually prefer this to Romancing the Stone because I I think she's more authoritative in this. I think she does more. I think she's not being dragged along Mm. quite as much as Kathleen Turner is. I love Kathleen Turner. Don't get me wrong. She's in my laminated top five. But (laughs) I just feel like Cyndi Lauper gets more to do here. And Cyndi Lauper took this role. And she'd been, like, people were throwing movie roles at her for a very, very long time time. Mm -hmm. And she kept saying no, because she's like, if I am doing this, I want to play an empowered woman. I want to play someone who like 
is able to save themselves and who is the equal of whoever I am paired with and that's what I want, which um, got her branded as difficult and many people right. didn't want to work with her. Um, and uh, so, for example, you mentioned Dan Aykroyd was originally uh, tagged on this movie. Uh, uh-huh. He quit because of her because he's just like, I can't work with her. She's just got too many demands. She's an idiot. Uh, Ron Howard was originally <laughs> slated to direct this. He was like, I just can't work with her. She's too, quote unquote, difficult. So both of them left. But David Putnam, who is a name that people will uh, remember for when we've talked about um, Ken Russell movies, who uh, mm-hmm. has seen a lot and done a lot. Uh, he was... <laughs> Once you go to Ken Russell, I mean, you can handle... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, so he, uh, so David Putnam ended up being head of Columbia, uh, kind of out of nowhere. So he was, uh, Columbia has an interesting history, which we'll get into in another episode, where he was actually uh, there to replace someone who had embezzled almost the entirety of Columbia's uh, like hmm. bank accounts and stuff. Fascinating story. We'll get into hmm. it. So they wanted someone completely outside of the Hollywood system who, um, you know, could kind of bring fresh blood to Columbia. And that happened to be David Putnam. David Putnam hated Hollywood. Hated everyone involved with Hollywood. He hated Hollywood movies. Uh, famously, he's quoted as E.T. should have died and he hated E.T. He's like, he should have stayed dead. Fuck that movie. Um, so, so this is this. Wow. So he really wanted to make like unusual, out-of-the-box wild movies. He's the man who greenlit Bugsy Malone, which is a gangster movie Alicia oh, loves. He's my hero. Composed of children. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, it's so it, everything he wanted to do was a little out there and a little weird. And that's really why he like was really 100% behind Cindy Lauper because mm-hmm. he kind of saw her as the anti-Madonna. And by 88, Madonna already was box office poison. She'd already done Shanghai Surpri- Surprise with um, uh, with Sean Penn, which was a disaster. Uh, Who's That Girl came out in 87, which is plot-wise also very similar to this film. It just doesn't have the magical element to it. Massive flop. So I think he was kind of banking on her to be what everybody had hoped Madonna would be. And this mm. movie just didn't, just didn't take. So yeah, he pushed he pushed her hard. He he let some of the top people go because he's like this is Cindy Lauper's time to shine. I think he was right. I just think it's the wrong picture for this late in the game of when these pictures were doing what they were. Mm-hmm. I wonder if David Putnam was yeah. a Mac and Me fan, but I think because <laughs> <laughs> they do kill the kid. Yeah, I believe in so one cut would, of Mac and Me. That would work for him, but I I you know, it's interesting because this film does not yet I think it has cult viability like this is a movie that I think it's it's forgotten whereas Earth Girls are easy people yeah. talk about it it's not a cult film at all it's not yeah. at all vibe vibes is not but no. it could it very well should be and I think for the similar reasons that like people watch old Jeff Goldblum movies that they wouldn't see otherwise they're like wow I really like that both Cindy Lauper and Jeff add that kind of hilarity to this film that maybe would otherwise not be there certainly if Dan Aykroyd took the role instead but it could I feel like this is kind of like a forgotten gem that has cult viability if only people knew about it and knew where to watch it you know watch it on That's Hollywood right. you watch it right on Hollywood Suite <laughs> subscribe now at hollywoodsuite.ca it, as far as I know it is not streaming anywhere else no. at, at the date of recording it had just come out on blu-ray like a year ago yep. Um, which was a big deal for me. I don't even remember how I found this film. I can't remember. I think I found a poster of this in a New York f- gallery. And it's it's a really fun poster with, like, the photos of mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper. And I was like, hold the phone. Yes, that exact. Lindsay just gestured <laughs> the exact uh, m- gesture that they're making on the poster. I was like, hold the phone. What is this movie? And then, you know, Brendan and I were like, wait, let's see if we can download it. Or we found it somehow, like, a VHS. And I was like, this is delightful. What, what? How is this not more well-known? Um, but it does seem like it's studio, which is now Sony, is if they put it out on Blu-ray and they made it available to Hollywood Suite, like it's it's in HD, they must be have a little bit of belief in it, I hope, probably because of Jeff Goldblum. It's also, we haven't talked about the director, Ken Quapis, who uh, directed Follow That Bird. That was his big <laughs> film prior to this, filmed in Toronto mm-hmm. um, and its environs. But uh, I love him. He's married to Marisa Silver, who's a fantastic filmmaker and... You know, he's got a really interesting history. He's going from, like, kids' films to this, which is Oh, yeah. He did Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Great director. Great director. Yeah. No, but I think, you know, it's funny, like, a film like Vibes. You know when you uh, look up a movie, and I initially saw it, by the way, uh, we had a copy of it at Queen Video, so that's how I got a hold of it. Awesome. That was during my, awesome. you know, 
I'm obsessed with Jeff Goldblum. I watch everything he's ever been a part of mm-hmm. phase. Uh, so Cindy Lauper, that like wasn't the draw for me. And I agree with you. I think Jeff would be the draw for people now. It's one of those log yeah, lines too, that when you hear it, it's like, so Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum are uh, in Ecuador on a lost treasure hunt. And oh, by the way, they're psychics. <laughs> it's like quite possibly <laughs> one of the greatest log lines ever. And uh, there's aliens in some Incan yeah, culture. Exactly. Uh, but I th- also feel like th- th- reading some of the reviews at the time are just sort of, I feel like, again, this is a movie that just kind of came a little bit too late. Had it come earlier, it would have been w- way more. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There's a nasty, snarky review that actually says it's like six blind men grabbing at high concept. <laughs> It's so mean. It's so mean. And it's just like, I I also don't think it's true. Like, it just think like, it's just, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it has elements of all of these other things, but I really think it stands on its own. And I think we're all saying this is, this one's totally worth a watch. It's super worth a watch. And there's this very fun interview with Jeff Goldblum that I dug up on TikTok and I need to send it to you both. He's, it's just coming off of uh, this film being released vibes and Earth Girls Are Easy was about to come out. And I think it's like some morning show and he calls in and he's doing his really funny little, you know, stuttery thing. But he pretends he's psychic on the call because apparently <laughs> when he was doing research for the role, you know, he he was drawn to it. And he was like, well, I, I spoke to some people who have this power when they touch objects, they can feel their origin. And then he's like, actually, wait, do you own a home and he starts doing it to his interviewer he's, but, but he's saying funny like whatever generic things like you have a two-story house and you drive a car with four wheels it's very precious uh and then she asks him about working with Cindy Lauper who he says was delightful and I believe it because I feel like Jeff Goldblum is the kind of person where again I find him so approachable and lovely that he would he would be so soft and endearing and sweet to someone who is maybe also potentially like new to film sets, certainly not new to industry, but him also being a musician, that's why he was drawn to working with her. And he like really right. appreciates her. I didn't her. think about that connection. Yeah. yeah. So it was a very sweet little interview I found on TikTok of all places that I'll share with you both where he just gushes about the Please. making of this movie and working with his mm. hot wife at the time, Gina Davis, on Earth Girls. <laughs> I think that is the perfect place to end this episode. So, uh, Alicia Fletcher, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. And it was so nice to chat with you, Lindsay. Uh, You know, a fellow Goldblum, uh, and your last name is so similar. It's great. Uh, This was the match made in heaven, just like, you know, Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum vibes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this was truly uh, a perfect episode to ask me to come and speak on. <laughs> there was only one person I was going to for Goldblum. There was there was only one, only one, only one, only one person in my circle has laid eyes on him and touched uh, him. He, now, and he did touch my face and told me my origins, my backstory, and everywhere I'd been. It was very cool. That's impressive. He's a, he's a multifaceted man, a man <laughs> of many talents and a lot of facial touching, which we don't yes. do in a post-COVID world. I know. Uh, Lindsay, please tell us how people can uh, see more of your work and, and hear about you. Yes, you can follow me on all channels at Lindsay's Online. I'm on uh, Instagram and I TikTok and I tweet and I have a film out in theaters right now called I Like Movies, which you can find more info about on my social channel. And you can join us in two weeks where it's baseball season and we're going to be looking at two baseball movies. It's Bull Durham and Eight Men Out. And we're going to be joined by the MLB Network's very own Adnan Burke. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Lindsay Blair Goldner as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.